If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yes, I mean, it's very striking that in 1940, when Britain is threatened with invasion, the cabinet decides to send half our serviceable tanks out to Egypt. That was David Reynolds on British strategy in the Second World War. It's a remarkable battle. It's totally remarkable. And actually a much more interesting battle than either Cressy or Agincourt. And that was Bernard Cornwell on the Battle of Poitiers. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast with me, Rob Attar. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. Plus we have a Kindle edition available on the Amazon website and an iPad edition on the Apple newsstand. You can find out more details of all of this, plus great subscription offers, on our website, historyextra.com. If you have any comments about the podcast or any of our other products, you can get in touch with us through email, podcast at historyextra.com, on Twitter, hashtag historyextra, or on the Facebook History Extra page. 70 years ago this month, Allied and Axis forces locked horns in North Africa at the Second Battle of El Alamein. This momentous clash proved a crucial turning point in the Desert War and prompted enthusiastic celebrations back in Britain. Next Monday, Cambridge historian David Reynolds presents a BBC documentary on the battle, set in the context of wider British strategy during the war. I had a chance to speak to David recently, and I began by asking him for a bit of background on the programme. 1942 and The Soft Underbelly is a film that uh, I've made about the, uh, the question of why the British and the Americans spent so much of the Second World War in the Mediterranean rather than crossing the Channel. And it's a film that enables us to explore some of the uh, less familiar aspects of the war because we tend, I think, to think of, of 1940 and focus on that in Britain. We pick out one or two events um, later in the war, such as the Battle of Alamein, such as D-Day. But what this film is trying to do is say, OK, let's think about the Battle of Alamein 
in a much broader context, uh, in the context of why we're in the Mediterranean, not invading France, uh, what, is the, what is the nature of this war in uh, the North African desert and in the, uh, the hills of Italy? Uh, and why, in some ways, did that war in the Mediterranean turn out against all Churchill's hopes to be rather like some of the fighting in the First World War that he was hoping against hope to avoid? We're talking today close to the 70th anniversary of the Allied victory at El Alamein. Why do you think that this battle has become such an iconic moment in the war? I think it was uh, the first time that the British army felt that it had beaten the German army in a straightforward battle. Uh, the British army was, of course, a British Empire army. The German army was German and Italian. But it was, in military terms, significant. It was also politically significant because the British morale was very low in 1942. Uh, Churchill's own position as Prime Minister was under question, if not under threat. And there was a sense that this was a political turning point as well. Uh, confirming Churchill as war leader for the rest of the war. Now, why was Churchill's position under threat? Because, I mean, we'd had victories in things like the Battle of Britain. So why was he under threat? Well, in 1940, that was not only, as Churchill said, this was Britain's finest hour and it became in many ways his finest hour as war leader. But uh, the Battle of Britain was really ensuring that the country could not be invaded and conquered. Uh, Churchill had promised, as soon as he became Prime Minister, that his aim was victory at all costs. And by 1942, it was fairly clear that Britain wasn't going to be defeated, but it was very hard to see how victory would be won. And so there was a feeling that uh, there were mutterings in Westminster that Winston had been great for uh, 1940, but maybe he was... Uh, uh, there ought to be some changes uh, in the leadership to ensure the victory uh, that was still uh, a long way off. So would you say the morale aspect was the most important aspect of this victory? Uh, for the British people, I think it was. Um, clearly, there was still a long way to go in military terms, uh, and the, the Soviet victory at Stalingrad, uh, much the same time, the end of 1942, beginning of 1943, was really far more significant in the overall uh, struggle against Nazi Germany. But for the British, there was a tremendous sense of a, of a morale boost that came from that victory. Now, Britain was, was fighting a European enemy that directly threatened the United Kingdom. So why were we expending so much energy fighting in North Africa? Well, it remains a matter of an uh, interesting debate, I think, um, in part because when we talk about Britain, we have to remember that in those days, Britain was an imperial power. The empire was an important part of Britain's resources, both in terms of raw materials, oil from the Middle East, uh, uh, the supply lines the, through Suez, the Suez Canal, but also uh, in manpower terms, um, we got uh, a lot of the troops that were fighting in the desert were actually from Australia, uh, New Zealand, South Africa, and particularly uh, India as well. Um, and so the imperial dimension was really why uh, uh, Churchill and his cabinet uh, were fighting a, a desert war to hold on to Egypt and, and the Suez Canal. 
So even when Britain itself was imperiled, the leadership still felt it was really important to fight for these global interests. Yes, I mean, it's very striking that in 1940, when Britain is threatened with invasion, the cabinet decides to send half our serviceable tanks out to Egypt because Italy has entered the war uh, and there's a real fear that the Italians will descend on an otherwise uh, pretty defenceless uh, uh, British position in Cairo and Suez and take that over as easy picking. So that, I think, is evidence of how significant the empire was uh, in the minds of these leaders that uh, they, they did that even in the, the, the crisis point of, of the Battle of Britain. And do we know whether the British public supported this view? I mean, they, they were being bombed sort of around this time during the Blitz. Did they feel that it was right to be fighting in North Africa? I think by 1942, there was a sense of puzzlement um, at where the war was going. And, of course, also um, a, a sense of, of demoralisation because of setbacks such as the surrender at Singapore in February, which was a huge um, blow to, to morale and self-esteem, the surrender of Tobruk uh, in the Western Desert in, in, uh, in the summer of 1942, so that I think that the British public was in, increasingly puzzled as to why as to where the war was going, what was the strategy, what, where were we going to see a victory. And at the very top, in the, in, 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 in the Cabinet and in Westminster, there were real criticisms of Churchill's style of leadership and the direction that he was uh, carrying the country. And what impact did the American involvement in the war, how, how did that affect our planning for North Africa? Well, the, the Americans took the view, they come in, of course, after Pearl Harbor in December 1941, and we have been fighting in the desert for uh, nearly 18 months by then. Um, the Americans take a straightforward view that the way to defeat Germany is to get back across the channel as quickly as possible, get into France, uh, and, and fight your way to Berlin. And that's possibly conceivable for a country with huge manpower resources and huge firepower. It's not uh, a, an idea that is uh, well received in London with all the memories not only of Dunkirk but of the, the huge losses in the First World War. Um, British leaders are still haunted in a way by the Somme in, even in 1942. Um, and the point is that in 1942 the British still have the whip hand in the uh, alliance. They're the senior partner in a sense because in any invasion across the Channel, it would be British forces and, let it be said, also Canadian forces who'd have to bear the brunt of the cross-Channel attack. And Churchill basically says, I'm not sending, I cannot justify what would be a suicide mission in 1942. We don't have air cover, we don't have uh, sufficient uh, supplies and logistic support and shipping and so on. And since he ha has effectively a veto power over that operation, uh, a cross-channel attack is not possible in 42 for the Americans. What President Roosevelt wants to do is ensure that American soldiers are fighting the Germans somewhere in Europe or in the European area in 1942 because he is faced with very strong pressure to concentrate on Japan, uh, on revenge for Pearl Harbor. 2,000 Americans have died in that attack. Uh, it was a humiliation. There's very strong feeling that Japan is the real enemy. A lot of people in the public and, and in Congress feel this. And what Roosevelt wants to do, fairly, to put it bluntly, is he wants to ensure that some American blood is spilled by the Germans in 1942 to focus the minds of the press and the public in, in the United States 
on the war against Germany, which for him is the really important war. So the, the consequence of that is that if he wants to fight the Germans somewhere and Churchill says we're not fighting them in France, uh, Roosevelt goes along with Churchill's argument, which is let's concentrate on North Africa, let's finish the job. And so just a few days after Alamein, uh, you have the Allied landings in French Northwest Africa, in Morocco and Algeria, which are supposed then to... Um, squeeze the Germans out of North Africa uh, with Mont Montgomery's army advancing from Alamein, the British and American troops advancing along the coast uh, eastwards, and they'll aim, their aim is to join up and, uh, in Tunis and drive the Germans out of North Africa in a matter of a, a month or two. And what benefits did the Allies see by driving the Germans out of North Africa? What, what did they gain in the end? Well, then the, the argument would be we have cleared uh, North Africa, we have inflicted a reverse on the Germans, uh, we have also helped to open up the Mediterranean to Allied shipping, make it safer for Allied shipping, even though there's still, of course, uh, German and, and Italian bases in, in Italy. Um, Churchill's line is that we can then see what we want to do. We might consider that in 1943 the best thing is to concentrate on crossing the channel or we might say okay we'll carry on with this offensive in the uh, in the Mediterranean. He talks about the Mediterranean as uh, the axis, the, the soft underbelly of the axis uh, and in fact when he meets Stalin in August 1942 he draws a picture of a crocodile and he says uh, the, uh, the France is the crocodile's hard snout, and that's dangerous. Uh, we're not going to attack the snout. We're going to go for the soft underbelly. Uh, uh, that's North Africa and Mediterranean. And we can, uh, we can make an attack there that could be very dangerous to the crocodile, as it were. Um, uh, but we're not likely to, to, to suffer the same kind of retaliation as if we tried to cross the channel. And so that's his idea. We can, this could be the base for attacking uh, from the south against uh, Hitler's Europe, or we could regroup and, and attack from, uh, f in, into France in 1943. He's at that stage keeping the options open. And so they had those two choices at that point. Why, in the end, did they go for Italy the following year? Right, well, then, you see, the, the whole idea of the North Africa cam campaign, uh, the landings in, in French North West Africa, is that the whole thing's going to be over in a matter of a few weeks. Um, it is very much a case of, of, of people in London and Washington saying, we'll win this by Christmas 1942. If they'd won it by Christmas 1942, then the options are open to redeploy the troops to France, uh, to, 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 to a cross-channel attack in, in the spring or summer of 1943. The problem is that Hitler reinforces Tunis. Uh, the Germans hold out until the rains come and the, uh, the, um, uh, the tracks and the, the landing fields turn into mud, sand turns into mud, and the result is that far from getting to Tunis by Christmas 1942, we don't capture Tunis until May 1943. When we do, there's a big haul of German prisoners, something like a quarter of a million German prisoners. But by May 1943, it's too late to redeploy for a major invasion across the Channel before 
the summer is over and the autumn makes it really very dangerous to do a channel crossing. So we go for Sicily and then we say, okay, what are we going to do with, after Sicily uh, in July? And eventually we invade Italy and then we, we argue that that is going to be a decisive moment in uh, uh, knocking Italy out of the war and uh, undermining the Axis. So it's really a case of a strategy that is uh, cobbled together um, incrementally in the light of uh, a situation that they didn't really expect to happen. Churchill spoke of Italy being the soft underbelly, but it, it really didn't, didn't turn out anything like that. What, why was he wrong in that case? Well, when he talks about a soft underbelly, I mean, Churchill knows what the geography of Italy is. He knows that it has this very rocky spine, but he doesn't think we will have to fight for it. And again, he's not... Um, uh, this isn't just his own willful thinking. The intelligence we have from uh, intercepts, from Ultra, from Bletchley Park, indicate that the German and Italian plan, the German plan is that if Italy uh, decides to surrender, and Italy does in, in the autumn of 1943, then the Germans will cut their losses, they'll pull back uh, way north up to near the Alps, they'll create a strong uh, position there, which would mean then that we would get control of most of Italy uh, without having to fight for it. And uh, in addition, we'd get some really important uh, airfields from which we could, in Italy, from which we could bomb southern Germany, which up till now has been difficult for Allied bombers to reach. So basically, Churchill is expecting, as he had in North Africa, easy pickings. The problem is that, once again, Ultra does not give us uh, an insight into Hitler's mind. And Hitler, just as he decided, he made a U-turn and decided to fight for Tunisia, so he decides to fight for Rome, to hold Rome and central and northern Italy. And once he does that, then, and the Germans fight for Italy, they are in an extremely strong position because of the, the, the mountainous terrain ideal for defence. And you have these classic and uh, disastrous and appalling sieges, like, for example, the Battle of Monte Cassino, which is, uh, you know, the Benedictine Monastery, high on a, a mountain, superb defensive position, which we take five months to, to conquer, and uh, uh, we take very heavy casualties in the process. What is the view of, of our allies at this point, the Americans and the Soviet Union, but about the fact that Britain's fighting Italy, not really making much progress? Were they frustrated by this? Yes, Stalin is increasingly uh, uh, direct in his criticisms. He has been told by Churchill that, you know, if we don't manage a second front in 1942 in France, we'll certainly, we're, we're really intending to do so in, in 1943. When it becomes clear that... Um, uh, we are not managing to do that. Stalin writes some very blunt letters back and he says the Soviets are making enormous sacrifices in this war. The Anglo-American sa sacrifices by comparison are, he says, insignificant. Um, uh, the Americans who have gone along with Churchill's strategy in 1942, as things begin to run out of steam and, and you know, progress is not made in 1943, uh, they are increasingly determined to take control of Allied strategy. And by now, they are becoming the senior partner because they're mobilised and their resources are available. And so um, by the time you get to the Tehran conference at the, uh, in November 1943, where R Stalin appears for the first time at a meeting between Churchill and Roosevelt, 
Stalin and Roosevelt are both determined to pin Churchill down on a cross-channel attack to France in the spring of 1944. And although Churchill is still hoping to pick up uh, uh, Mediterranean islands or make further progress in Italy, uh, his allies, Roosevelt and, and Stalin, basically outvote him. It's two to one. He is pinned down on, going, on crossing the channel uh, uh, in the spring of 1944. Well, that's interesting. So, so had that not happened, do you think that Britain might have held off till 1945 or even later for the D-Day landings? The British view at, in, this war, in that war, as in earlier wars, is that uh, we are fighting a war of attrition. Uh, we, our strengths are in sea power, in financial resources, in uh, the resources of the empire, and we will gradually wear the enemy down. Uh, as we did, for example, fighting the French, fighting the Napoleon um, at the beginning of the, the 19th century. You know, that, those wars were 20 years, uh, more than 20 years. Um, and a lot of the time we were not fighting anywhere near France. So, you know, we were fighting in Spain, for example. Um, so the, the approach to this war is, in, 19, uh, in the Second World War, is, is, is rather similar. Um, we will wear the Germans down. And when they are worn down, the army will cross the channel and administer the kind of coup de grace. But that's, as it were, the last stage in the process. Before then, the bombing, the blockade, the gradual pressure on Germany, closing the ring, in Churchill's phrase, on Nazi Germany, that's going to wear them down. Uh, whereas for the Americans, going head to head with the German army as soon as possible is the, is the way to win this war and they have the firepower to do it. For Stalin, that is also the argument. In his case, he has no particular compunction about the number of, of men he loses. The Soviet losses in that war, as we know now, are something like 27 million dead. Uh, so massive, uh, you know, a seventh of the pre-war population. Um, Stalin doesn't care about losing manpower, but he, like Roosevelt in a different way, believe in getting to grips with the German army. Uh, on the battlefield, whereas that for Churchill is something you avoid until they are the Germans are really on their knees. And do we have any idea about, from the German point of view, what they most feared? Would they were they most concerned about a head-on fight, or was it the attritional approach that most concerned them? Well, I mean, Hitler's view of the war is really that I mean he's taking a series of gambles all the way through, and the gambles are based on the assumption that Germany has to move fast before. Uh, resources of the enemy countries are fully mobilized. He's pretty contemptuous of the United States and its potential. Um, but uh, after the fall of France, which is an astonishing event, uh, which the Germans did not expect, even Hitler didn't expect, the complete collapse of France in four weeks, there is a feeling in Berlin that you know, Nazi Germany is walking on water, really, that they can do anything. And that's why they mount this hubristic attack into the Soviet Union um, in June 1941. They assume that the Red Army will collapse in a few weeks, like the French Army did. They, they are not prepared for a long war with, you know, bitter winter fighting and all the rest of it. Um, so as the war goes on, it's clear that it's becoming clearer that, that you know, time is running out for Hitler. Um, once we do get to grips with the German army on the continent of Europe in the summer of 1944, 
uh, at the same time as there's a massive Russian offensive from the east, um, then there's a real sense that the war is that, that, that Nazi Germany is is rushing to its downfall with with enemies against it on the east and west. Because up till now there has been no Western Front in Europe and since 1940. Um, so once the Western there's a Western Front and an Eastern Front from June 1944, Germany's downfall comes very rapidly. You've done quite quite a lot of research into this area. In, in your opinion, do you think that the Americans and the Soviets were right about this? Was Britain wrong to have this Africa and then Italy strategy? Well, it's very, it's, it's, it is a, a complicated matter. I think that you could say that we might have crossed the channel in real strength in 1943 if we'd done nothing in 1942. And even that's a big if, because we still, you know, we'd have to control the Atlantic supply lines and the Battle of the Atlantic is still serious in, the, in early 1943. Um, but let's say we did nothing in 1942. We might have made a big cross-channel attack in 1943. On the other hand, it would almost be impossible to persuade public opinion in uh, the, um, uh, Britain and in the United States that it was justified to do nothing all through 1942 while the Russians were fighting for their lives in the East and looked quite possibly like surrendering and collapsing. And if they collapsed, then Hitler would turn west against us again, as in 1940, with renewed strength. So the, the pressure to do something, both for morale terms and to support the Russians, was very strong. Uh, uh, if Churchill's convinced that he, he's not willing to cross the Channel, then you know, North Africa makes some sort of sense in 1942. Where it goes wrong is really that they underestimate the supply co consequences of uh, invading North Africa. They underestimate German resistance, and that's partly a, a failure of intelligence. And then when they go into to, uh, Italy, again, they, you know, underestimate uh, the, 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 the consequences and the costs of the campaign. So, you know, this is a debate which will go on and on and on. Should we have crossed the channel in 1943 rather than 44? The other factor that's always important here is that Roosevelt and Churchill are in charge of democracies. If there's a huge loss of life, uh, they will have to answer to a parliament and a congress. Stalin does not have that constraint. And so the, the, the Soviet way of war, the Stalinist way of war, is one which is inconceivable for uh, uh, British and American leaders operating in a democracy and operating against the background of the memories of the First World War. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That was Professor David Reynolds of the University of Cambridge. You can watch 1942 and Hitler's Soft Underbelly on Monday the 15th of October on BBC4 at 9pm. And now we have a short advertisement break. Marie Curie was not only a legendary scientist and Nobel Prize winner, 
She was also mother to two extraordinary girls, Irene and Eve. Drawing on personal letters between the women, Shelley Emling's new book, Marie Curie and Her Daughters, shows how Marie influenced her children, yet let them blaze their own paths. Irene followed in her mother's footsteps and won a Nobel Prize with her husband, while Eve travelled the world as a foreign correspondent, wrote her mother's biography and eventually moved on to humanitarian missions. For the very first time, discover the truth about Marie Curie's relationship with her daughters. Marie Curie and Her Daughters by Shelley Emling Available now in hardback and ebook from all good booksellers. One pound from the sale of this book is donated to the Marie Curie Cancer Care Charity. Now we have a short message about a BBC History magazine event. The magazine is running a First World War History Day on Sunday the 4th of November. It's being held at Bristol's M Shed Museum and will feature lectures from Gary Sheffield, Hugh Strawn, Peter Caddick-Adams, William Philpott and Mark Connolly, along with an audience debate with all the speakers. Tickets are on sale now and you can find out more and book by going to www.historyextra.com forward slash events. That's historyextra.com forward slash events. Bernard Cornwell is one of Britain's best-known historical novelists, whose work includes the famous Sharp Adventures. His new book, 1356, is set during the Hundred Years' War and centres on the Battle of Poitiers, where the English scored a major victory under the leadership of Edward the Black Prince. I met up with Bernard recently in advance of a book signing to get the lowdown on the novel and the battle that inspired it. The book centres on and takes its title on a specific year, 1356, why do you feel that's such an important date for English history? Well, I'm not sure it's an important date for English history, but it's a date that no one seems to know. I mean, we all know about, about the Battle of Cressy in 1346, we know about Agincourt in 1415, mm. and there is this third battle, which was in many ways just as extraordinary as those two. I mean, it's extraordinary not just for the fact that you have a small British-English army, which is outnumbered two to one, but this astonishing result that at the end of the day the French king is captive and no one yeah. seems to know that this happened. Right, maybe not very important that they know, but it does seem worth remembering. Why do you feel this, it isn't so well known as things like, you say, Agincourt and Cressy? I have no idea. Maybe it's because the, the, the English were not led by their king and, and the king obviously controlled the spin doctors. I mean, when, you know, when Henry V went back after Agincourt, um, you know, the, the, the victory was proclaimed in churches and read at market crosses, as Shakespeare says. Um, and, you know, the, the, the uh, Agincourt Carol was written and was sort of spread through the land. So, so an enormous fuss was made about this. Maybe uh, Edward III, who was the Black Prince's father, seemed to take it quite calmly, as though, well, I expected that. Uh, but nevertheless, there was this huge parade through London where the, the poor French King Jean was paraded through London in front of, front of sort of great big crowds. But somehow it never caught the imagination in the way that, that Cressy and Agincourt did. And the only thing I can think of is that the, because the king didn't get, he wasn't the sort of leading man, he didn't get top billing, it didn't get the sort of top spin doctors either. Because it was certainly a remarkable battle in itself, wasn't it? It's a remarkable battle, it's totally remarkable. And, and actually a much more interesting battle than either Cressy or Agincourt. I mean, Agincourt is a, it's an interesting battle, but it's very simple. And Poitiers is anything but simple. And, and in researching the period for the book, did, you, did it change your impressions about what you knew about this period, about the battle? 
I'm not sure if it changed it very much because I'd, I'd written a trilogy set with, with the same um, hero, Thomas of Hookton. So in that sense, I knew quite. I hope I knew quite a lot about the background. I think what surprised me most about both writing Agincourt and 1356 was the fact that the uh, the the English archer was not quite the decisive thing that we're sort of history tells us he was. I mean, what, what's astonishing about Agincourt, let's take that one as an example, is that, you know, the first French attack was 8,000 men-at-arms who were advancing on foot, and they're advancing through thick mud. And it must have taken, we don't know, but let's assume, it's a fair assumption, it took them seven or eight minutes to actually advance from their start position till they actually hit the English line. And during those seven or eight minutes, they're being shot at by 5,000 archers who can shoot a minimum of 12 arrows each a minute and probably shooting 15 or 16, and yet they get there. But you, I mean, you do the math. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's 5,000 archers times, let's, be, let's say only 12, so it's 5,000 times 12 times the number of minutes, and those arrows are hitting these guys, and yet they get there. They, they still get there. So what it means is, and in fact, one of the chroniclers at Poitiers says that the English arrows were crumpling. And by this time, and Poitiers is the first battle at which the French decide to fight on foot, because they know that arrows are absolutely deadly against horses. And at the beginning of the battle, the French throw in two cavalry charges, which are supposed to destroy the, the English archers on the wings, and, and both fail because they're hit by, by arrows. After that, they fight on foot. And... Certainly, the arrows are an incredible inconvenience. It means you have to fight with your visor down, and, uh, which, which is a huge disadvantage. But it does seem the arrows were not, were, you know, the, the armour, the plate armour could resist them. So I think that surprised mm. me. So that being the case, and as far as I'm aware, the English were slightly outnumbered, so what, how about did... two to one, yeah. So how, did, how were they able to, to win with, if this, this great weapon of theirs wasn't so great? Well, it was great. I mean, don't get it wrong. It's, they won, I think, because one is, is probably always easier to defend. And they had a pretty good position, and they were protected by a, by a very, very thick hedge. There were two gaps in it. And the poor French had to come through the gaps. Um, the main reason, I think there are two main reasons. First is the English were very disciplined, and they, they held the line. There's a great temptation when, when the enemy breaks and starts to sort of retreat, to, to break yourself and go after them, to take prisoners, to get ransoms, and, and they, they resisted that, all except for one idiot called Sir Humphrey Barclay, but he was the only one. And the second one, I think that the English command structure worked, um, which the French didn't. I mean, the French were all over the place. So the, the French had incredibly bad leadership, and the, and, and the English had incredibly good leadership, and the English were far more disciplined than the French. Do you feel the Black Prince deserves applaudits for the victory? Oh, he must do, yes. I mean, but, but Edward III was no fool. I mean, he knows that, that his son is, is, what, 26 years old, which is old enough. Uh, and his son has seen some action. I mean, he was at Cressy, but as a 16-year-old. Uh, but he makes sure he's surrounded by older men who are very, very experienced. And this army had been together for two years, the Black Prince's army, with these senior guys, I mean, guys like Reginald Cobham and the Earl, you know, the Earl of Oxford and so on, who and the Earl of Warwick, and, and these were his advisers. And you do very much get the impression that you listen to these guys, and that the Black Prince, who seems like, we don't know very little about him, but he seems like a good guy, knew enough to listen to them. But equally, the sort of surprise blow at the end, which wins the battle, seems to have been the Prince's idea entirely, which is this uh, cavalry charge around the back, only 160 men, 
who go around the back of the French army and, and suddenly appear out of nowhere on horseback to attack them, and that's what panics the French. So what were the consequences for France of losing this battle? It was disaster. It was complete disaster. Um, for a start, France has lost, it, not only has it lost its king, and, and, and the king is now a prisoner in London, and that means that the French have got to pay an enormous ransom to get him back. I mean, it's almost impossible to say what that ransom is in modern terms. We're talking millions and millions of pounds. But it's not just the king. Half their senior aristocracy are prisoners, and they've all got to pay ransom. A lot of the others are dead. Well, you now get, you get some rebellions in France, because people say, well, look, you know, the, you aristocracy, the only thing you're supposed to be good at is protecting us. You know, it's your job is to fight. And, and you've been hopeless. And so France really falls into chaos for a long period. And you then get the period of the free companies roaming France and, you know, basically being bandits and holding towns to ransom and, and stealing and whatever. France does fall into chaos for a long period. It was a, it was a very bad time for France. And I suppose conversely, it must have done great things for England and the English crown. It does, it certainly does. It's, it's, warfare then was an economic activity. You know, the, the French carried a flag called the Oriflamme. The Oriflamme was their great war, mm. war banner, and it was a very long, thin, bright red pennant, which was kept in the Monastery of St. Denis. And as long as the Oriflamme was flying over the French forces, it meant you're not to take prisoners. Because the aim of battle is to take prisoners. Not the common man. I mean, you, you gain nothing by taking an archer prisoner. But if you manage to capture Sir Humphrey Berkeley, which the French actually did in this battle, then uh, you can ransom him back. And his ransom was £2,000. He's the only prisoner the French took. The English took, you know, the king, the king's third, second or third son, I can't remember which now. You know, plus various dukes and God knows what else. And their ransom is several million pounds. So the economics of it is, is this has been a huge success and, and this money is going to flow into and does. So the castle we see at Warwick today is more or less built on uh, the profits of the Battle of Poitiers because Warwick took so many prisoners, rich prisoners, or his men did. Um, so, so, you know, Warwick Castle is, is a result of the Battle of Poitiers. A huge amount of money flowed into London, too, obviously. The French never actually did pay the whole of the ransom for King Jean, and he died in captivity ten years later, but much of it had been paid. And remember, at this time, they also had the King of Scotland as a prisoner in London. So they're also getting a ransom from the Scots. So it's been incredibly successful for them. And, of course, the, the, the campaign before that is the Chevauchet, uh, which is a brutal way of making war, but it was an accepted way. And the Chevauchet, uh, this is what led to the battle, is basically a destructive raid that goes through France. You spread your forces out over a very wide front, and then you just advance across the countryside and you destroy everything in your path. I mean, everything. And the idea of that is that you're destroying the enemy's tax base. Uh, people can't afford to pay taxes if, in fact, their fields have been laid waste, their wells have been poisoned, if their barns have been burnt, if the mills have been pulled down, if their orchards have been chopped down. Uh, now, if you're a town in the path of a chevauchet, you did have the choice of paying the, the English money to leave you alone. But it was a lot of money, and a lot of them did prefer to pay. But So that money went back back to England. The other, other sort of advantage of a chevauchet is if you see your tax base being destroyed in this ruthless way, uh, you might have to come out and fight to stop it. And that's in the end what the French do. The French, uh, the Black Prince had done a chevauchet the year before, which was incredibly successful. He went right across the south of France from the 
from the Atlantic all the way to the Mediterranean and back. I mean, just burning, destroying, killing, looting, raping. Did an immense amount of damage. And there is actually a letter which says just how much the tax base has been reduced in France. So he's doing the same thing again in 1356. And at this time he's going north toward, towards the heart of France. And King Jean decides he's got to stop it. So he takes his army south to meet him. And um, what, what do you feel, as a novelist, you can add to this period that historians can't? Oh, gosh, story. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's what's the job of an historical novelist? I and mean, I think sometimes that, you know, that we're, we're, we're a gateway to history, uh, whereas someone might not read, and it would be their own folk, whose brilliant books, Jonathan Sumption's History of the mm. Hundred Years' War, they might well read one of my books, because they, you know, I hope, um, because it's, they think I'm going to get a good, exciting story. But my then hope is that they'll go on from that, and they'll be curious enough to go on and read, say, Jonathan Sumption or somebody else. Um, and you, you know, obviously, you can, you can, you can add things. Um, if you're writing a history, strict history book, you have to stick with the with with the facts or with what you know what your sources tell you. If there's a mystery involved, if we don't know, then I can make it up and sound authoritative as I do it. Although I do think you have to confess your sins at the end and say, look, these are the bits I made up. And that's that's an interesting point. How how able do you feel to make things up and? Change oh, established totally. facts. Oh, absolutely, yes. Well, if it's an established fact, you probably can't change it. But, I mean, okay, let's take an example from the Sharp series. I mean, in, in Sharp's Tiger, uh, at the Battle of Sering Apatam, the Tipu Saab dies. Now, uh, what we know, what we seem to know, is that he was killed by a red coat in the, in the tunnel, which is called the Watergate. It's a very long, dank tunnel through a very large wall. We simply don't know who that soldier was. Uh, and the reason we don't know who it was, because you'd think, okay, this guy would, you know, having killed the mm. enemy commander, would want to get the kudos for it. Well, he didn't, because the reason was the tipu was loaded down with jewels. I mean, absolutely loaded with jewels and pearls and rubies and diamonds and gold. And of course, he got the damn lot. And if he'd confessed that he was the guy who killed the enemy commander, then they're going to say, well, where are the jewels? So he never does. Well, so, not, you know, so I can easily make Sharp do that, right? Because we yeah. don't know. But now, if we knew that it was... Uh, Private Albert Jones of the whatever regiment, and I can't change that, you know, because we know it. So I can only take what we don't know and say, okay, I'll fill that gap. And, and historical novels in general seem to be experiencing a real boom time at the moment. Do you have any idea why they're so popular? No currently? idea at all. Absolutely none. I mean, I, I think when I started writing, um, they were not that popular. Um, I mean, I've, I've heard it said, you know, that the end of the Cold War did it. I don't know if that's true. I actually have no idea whatsoever. I mean, I'd like to think that, that historical novelists are just telling great stories. And that if you want a good story, and people do want a good story, then, you know, that's one place to go. And maybe people, maybe it's the way history's taught. Maybe, you know, we're filling in that gap. I mean, we, history used to be taught as a series of sort of often quite exciting stories. Now it seems to be taught as a way of making us feel guilty about our past. And I've noticed a lot of these books certainly look like an attempt to do a Bernard Cornwall or their phrases the next Bernard Cornwall. How do you feel about that kind of thing? I love it. It's okay. I'm still here. Um, I mean, somebody produced a book about two years ago which says, better than Bernard Cornwall or your money back. And someone said, well, aren't you upset by that? I said, no, my name's on his book. His name isn't on my book. Did they get their money back? I, I have no idea. I've never seen another book by the guy. So... But that's great. You see, I mean, in other words, his book had my name, you know, advertising. No, I think it's fine. I mean, and there are some terrific historical novelists about. And, you know, I'm 
getting on and old. There's about time there was another one. Actually, I'd much rather there was, you know, the new whoever his name is, Giles Christian or whatever, you know, whoever's going to be the next big one. Do you have a favourite historical novelist currently? Do I have a favourite historical novelist? Well, I mean, I, I'm probably still stuck in the past. I still love C.S. Forrester. Um, I still think Gore Vidal's Lincoln is the best historical novel I've ever read. I love George MacDonald Fraser. Um, so, all of the above. That was Bernard Cornwell. 1356, Go With God and Fight Like the Devil, has recently been published by HarperCollins. You can find out more about Bernard at his website, bernardcornwell.net. I'd just like to mention that we'll be attending the English Heritage Battle of Hastings reenactment this weekend. It's taking place on Saturday and Sunday at the 1066 Battle of Hastings Abbey Battlefield. If you're going to be there, do come along to our stand at the Marketplace for a chat. We'll also be running a special subscriptions offer exclusively for the event. You can find more details of the weekend at the English Heritage website. And that's about all for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed the programme. We'll be back next week when we'll be talking about wartime farming and we'll be finding out about an exciting new resource for historical researchers. Do join us for that. And in the meantime, do have a look at our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find all manner of great content. And you can, of course, keep in touch with us on Twitter and on Facebook as well. The History Extra Weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. 